0: Hello and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 16th episode of this podcast, recorded on Thursday, April 13th. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. My guest today is Christopher Clark, a preeminent litigator who has successfully handled the highest stakes and highest profile matters in nearly every type of major dispute. Some of his past and current clients include billionaires Elon Musk and Mark Cuban, whom he represented in their cases with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and Hunter Biden, whom he represents in an ongoing federal criminal investigation. You may have seen Chris in the news last week. After a decade as a litigation partner at Latham & Watkins, one of the world's leading large law firms, he left to join forces with two other top trial lawyers, Patrick Smith and Rodney Villazor, to launch Clark Smith Villazor, As reflected in some of my past podcast guests, including Paul Clement of Clement & Murphy, Robbie Kaplan of Kaplan, Hecker and & Fink, and Steve Molo of Molo Lampkin. Boutiques seem to be where it's at right now in the world of litigation. And Chris's move is just the latest demonstration of this trend. In our conversation, Chris and I discussed his early career, including his service in the legendary U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, his journey through big law, including his time at a certain firm called Dewey & LaBeouf, why he left Latham to launch Clark Smith Villasor, as well as the vision for the new firm, a little bit about his client, Hunter Biden, whom he will continue to represent going forward, and the unique challenges of representing billionaires like Mark Cuban and Elon Musk. Without further ado,
1: here's my interview of Chris Clark.
0: Chris, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Absolute pleasure, David. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And congratulations on your big move. That's very exciting news.
1: Yeah, I couldn't be happier. And it's just so exciting to be working with Pat and Rodney. I think we're an amazing, really, really strong team. And we're all ready to roll.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Just to kind of start at the beginning, what was your childhood or your upbringing like? And did you know from an early age that you were going to become a lawyer?
1: I didn't know, but everybody told me I was. So I think (laughs) that's probably a good indication. But yeah, I sort of grew up lower middle class in Northern California, in Fremont, where now my former client Elon has his car factory. And it was really one of those towns where you could be in the middle class. Most people's parents hadn't gone to college. There was a big GM factory there. There was a lot of construction. And so you really had the last of the suburban California areas where you could be working class, kind of like Joan Didion writes about a lot. So it was a great place to grow up went to college at Berkeley, right there, public school, right, you know, near where I grew up, and then came to New York to go to law school, having decided that I was way too type A and way too combative to get into academia. So sort of (laughs) everybody's prediction of my youth was right, that this was the job for me.
0: And did you go straight through from Berkeley to Columbia?
1: I did. Yeah. And unlike a lot of people, I went straight through from law school to a clerkship to the US Attorney's Office, which wasn't really incredibly common. And I think it's less common now that they made the mistake and hired me right out of a clerkship. So <laughs> I never really had a real job until I was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York.
0: And that's quite a first job to have. I'm curious, where did you clerk actually?
1: I clerked for Judge Kaplan in the Southern District, who now has the FTX case. And then I clerked for Judge McLaughlin on the Second Circuit before I went into the attorney's office.
0: Oh, fantastic. And did you go through the honors program or did the SDNY hire directly out of clerkships back then?
1: They did. They hired not that many people, but definitely a few people straight out of clerkships. If you did the the district court on the circuit, it was like you had enough work experience, which wasn't true. But (laughs) it was the theory. And so, yeah, I got hired right out of Judge McLaughlin's chambers.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And tell me a little bit about your time in the office. I understand you had quite a number of trials, for example, and you also argued a lot of appeals.
1: Yeah, you know, I was relatively busy. I mean, what happened actually was pretty quickly after I started in general crimes, which is kind of the, you know, postal theft, sort of general crimes area. Actually, Pat Smith and David Essex had a very, very big securities fraud wire And they needed essentially, you know, scut workers to do all the really tedious work that a wire takes. And so I started working for them right after I started in the office. And we all collectively ended up charging so many cases that I actually got to try some security fraud cases, you know, within my first year at the U.S. attorney's office. And so my first security fraud case, Pat, was my trial partner. And it exposed me to a lot of kind of. More of what we'd call white collar practice, like right off the bat. I never really was too heavily involved in any kind of more of the guns and drugs part of the cases. I did some, but through Pat's good offices, really got involved in white collar very early.
0: That's interesting. People sometimes say in the SDNY that you cut your teeth on the guns and drug stuff. And then when you're starting to get ready to move to the private sector, you get to do the securities and commodities fraud stuff because that's the most marketable. But it sounds like you focused on securities fairly early
1: yeah I always wanted to do it, and yeah literally within six months of being in the office, I had indicted a securities case because there was just it turned out there were so many targets on this wire that we just didn't have enough people to indict them with the experience like all our lawyers, and so they just kind of said go ahead, so it was a great experience and really you know got to get up the lawyer earlier than as you described is is a little bit more traditional,
0: oh no, that's great and How many years were you in the office? And do you recall how many cases you tried or how many appeals you argued during that time?
1: I was there over seven years. And I did in that time, I think nine or 10 trials. And I did a lot of appeals. I was one of the people who would volunteer to help edit people's briefs. And, you know, for various reasons, there were times people couldn't show up to argue their case, or there'd be cases that were. You know, for lack of a better term, were cases where the assistant who tried the case or did the case had left the office. And so I was always eager to volunteer to do those. So I got a lot of arguments, which was great and, and really fun. I always really loved being in the Second Circuit. Nothing's on submission. Everything's live. And it's, it's just a great court.
0: Absolutely. And then where did you go after your seven years in the U.S. Attorney's Office?
1: I went to the long lamented firm of Dewey and LaBeouf, which was then LaBeouf Lamb. Yep. I worked there through the merger, through the bankruptcy. And it's actually a funny story. One of the depositions I took in the Cuban Insider Trading case, I had to give my parents as my house because I didn't have a law firm that I worked at because my <laughs> law firm had declared bankruptcy that day and I hadn't yet started at Latham. So I literally said to Mark, you know, you got to promise not to sue me for my practice because I have no insurance for this deposition. <laughs> But actually, the case worked out well, so we never had to worry about malpractice. Yeah, so I was there through the whole blow up. And then, you know, very luckily, Richard Owens, who's also a from the office, suggested I come over to Latham. And it was a great ten years there.
0: Oh, great. So tell me, how did you decide to go to Latham from
1: Dewey? It was really Richard. I mean, honestly, almost every time I've made a decision to go work at a law firm, which has been three times in my life, it's been about working with friends and people I know really well. And so, you know, Richard was my chief in securities unit. I tried the Adelphi case with him for six months. And, you know, as we said then, and, and we say, still say now, we either would have been absolute enemies or best friends after doing that case together. Huh. It turned out we were lifelong friends. And so as Dewey was sort of melting down, Richard called and said, hey, you know, you thinking about what you're going to do. And I said, I'd love to come work with you. So it really was just that kind of personal connection and personal trust that I had with Richard that gave me the push to go to Latham and it worked out great.
0: And you had a very good run there. How many years were you there in total?
1: 10 years. Wow. It's hard to imagine it was that long, but I have checked the dates.
0: Yes. And in this day and age of increased movement, 10 years is a good long time. And you also had some leadership positions too during your time there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I helped run the global securities litigation department. I helped run the global financial institutions department. And then most recently, I helped run the New York office, all of which were, you know, really great, amazing experience in a big global firm like that. To be involved in management is quite an experience.
0: So I have such huge respect for Latham as a firm. I actually profiled their litigation practice a number of years ago when I was at Above the Law. It really is a world-class firm. I spoke earlier in this podcast with Gary Feinerman, who left the bench to join Latham. So I guess the natural question is, why would you leave?
1: It is a great firm. It's a great, big, global firm. And I think if you talk to people who litigate for the kinds of clients I do, who are You know, individuals like Mark and Elon, big hedge funds, people who founded big hedge funds, big firms like that, A, have a lot of conflicts, particularly with financial institutions. And they don't usually run to the side of the big money managers. They run to the other side of the big financial institutions of what we call the sell side as opposed to the buy side. And look, it's not the easiest thing to be super nimble, proactive, and aggressive at the second largest law firm in the world. It's just not. There are lots of checks and balances and lots of layers for good reason. But at this point in my career, I like to think I'm wise enough that I don't need too many checks and balances. <laughs> I'd like to think that my client's desires you know, need to be foremost in my mind to execute. And being at a shop that you run with you know, one of your lifelong friends allows you complete decision-making authority for how to litigate for your clients. I don't have to worry about pissing off an investment bank. And there have been times when I have. Yep. And, you know, it, these people have huge disputes with those kinds of institutions. They want world class lawyers who can go 100% to bad for them. And they've got that now in our firm.
0: That makes perfect sense. I'm curious though Clark Smith Lazor is a boutique. Is there anything about being a boutique or not being at a several thousand lawyer firm that you feel limits you or constrains you or could be a detriment in any way?
1: I think there's perception and reality. On the perception standpoint, I could imagine people thinking that there's not enough staffing at a smaller firm. I actually think that's just a perception. It's not true. I mean, it wasn't like I was using 30 lawyer teams on cases in any of my cases, no matter how big. I mean, even like the Argentine debt, you know, litigation, which was a huge sprawling multi year thing. We had a core team of five people, right? Wow. Yeah. And that's better for the client because those five people know the case, right? It's not a junior person who's been brought in, like, you know, it's feeling the elephant, but not knowing what it is, right? And it's, yeah. it's people with mastery of it. But we can easily put a team together like that right now. The, the, the issue that will come up and we have, to, we, we're, 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 dealing with it on a day-to-day basis in real time is, you know, at Latham, you can pick up the phone to a great bankruptcy lawyer who's going to have amazing answers for you about the bankruptcy questions you're facing in real time. We don't have that right now. I don't know that we'll ever have it. And the more, I don't want to say esoteric, but the more specialized the issue, like, you know, really, really deep broker-dealer regulation, really, really deep futures regulation, Those are things that, you know, you don't have at your fingertips. Now, the good news is in New York, there are firms that are amazing at that, that aren't big firms, right? And so, you know, I'm finding now we're partnering with these incredible lawyers who, I don't want to say I'm shocked by how good they are, but I'm super pleased by how good they are. And we can access them almost as fast. It's not picking up the phone. It's definitely, you make one or two phone calls, but they're there. But that's a real issue and it needs to be managed. But it's pleasant because you actually are making all these neat contacts that you never had before. So part of its perception, part of its reality, the reality part, I think it's kind of neat so far to be able to sort of team with these people who are incredibly gifted in their own particular area.
0: Would you like to follow in Chris Clark's footsteps and leave Big Law to launch your own boutique? This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212 292 1000 or email development at nextfirm.com today to learn more. I also understand that perhaps you might still work alongside large firms. When I interviewed Steve Molo of Molo Lampkin recently, he mentioned that I think a significant majority of their cases, they're working alongside a larger firm. And I believe you said in some interviews that some of your matters from Latham might still have Latham's involvement as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, for instance, the Hunter Biden case, our team is still intact, right? And we're going to stay a team. So I'm the senior lawyer on that team, but a bunch of my you know, former yeah. partners and, and councils and associates are going to be involved. They've done an amazing job for Hunter so far, and they're going to be involved until, you know, we win it for him. So absolutely, you know, teaming with Latham or teaming with other firms is something we're happy to do at my firm. And by the way, we did it at Latham all the time. I mean, like the Argentine debt case is a great example I think every firm in New York was involved in some capacity, right? But like, many on our team. And so it happens all the time. And again, it's actually neat to kind of get to work with people, see their own perspective, see what their strengths and weaknesses are. And we'll be doing a lot of that for sure.
0: So the Hunter Biden case, obviously, it's hugely in the news and it's very sensitive and ongoing. So there's probably not much you can say. But is there anything that you can say publicly about that matter or its status or anything interesting about it that is capable of being disclosed?
1: Not much, frankly, it's an ongoing criminal representation. I can say Hunter is a great person. I can say I'm really proud to be representing Hunter. And I can say, you know, you're right. It's in the news all the time. And what's not in the news is that Hunter, after all these struggles has maintained his sobriety for years now. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody reports on the fact that after all this difficulty he had and after all these tragic circumstances in his life. And after struggling with addiction in the way he did, he's sober. He's taking care of his son right now, you know, in L.A. with his wife. And he's living a really, really principled, great life. And so it's wonderful to work on behalf of somebody who's turned things around like that. Not just temporarily or like as a flash in the pan, but really with their whole life. You know, it's amazing. I didn't know him, obviously, before these things came up for him. But like, he's someone who's, you know strikes me as being at peace. I've had friends and family members who struggle with addiction and he just seems like he's in a great place. And it's wonderful to be able to help somebody like that.
0: I'm very glad to hear that regardless of one's politics. I think we all know about the scourge of addiction. And so when somebody manages to break free of it and remain sober and stable, we should all be happy about that. So I'm very glad to hear about that. So turning to your new firm, you mentioned, of course, that you might work with larger firmists, but I also understand that you are looking to grow the firm as well in terms of what Pat and Rodney already have, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, they've built a great firm, as you know, started as more of a criminal boutique. They've definitely been expanding into you know what you'd call complex commercial civil litigation and securities litigation in the last few years. But we either have the blessing or the curse of having most of my matters and clients from Latham come over. And in order to service those clients, we're going to need to bring on a lot more talent. So I think, you know, in the next six months, I think you'll look at the firm being on fifteen or 20 lawyers. And in the next year, I would imagine more than that. We've already signed up some people that we're going to bring on in the next couple of weeks we're not going to hire people just to hire people. These are people that we know really well who we're really excited to work with, but we'll be bringing on a whole bunch more talent in the next few months.
0: Excellent. Glad to hear. It makes sense. The white collar space seems very, very busy right now. And also commercial litigation. What areas are jumping out at you right now as very busy or what are the areas that are keeping you most active right now?
1: I don't know if it's a macro thing or not, but we have a lot of what I'd call board representation slash corporate crises, Mm. a lot of companies, public and private coming to us to help us sort out disputes between directors, disputes between stakeholders, issues with management acting in a way that's troubling to the board. We have a lot of those active right now. They're great matters because they're fast. You know, most of our litigations take years to resolve these take weeks. And so, it's been a focus of mine for the last five years, maybe. And the firm is very busy with those. I think the other thing that we're going to see a lot more of, which has been, I don't want to say dormant, but it's been quiet over the last five years, is, you know, distressed and distressed adjacent litigation, right? A lot of sins were able to be taken care of because of cheap money and cheap refinancing. Yep. And those kinds of Easy access to cash—it's just not going to be available to companies anymore, and they're really going to deal with fundamental business problems, deterioration of their markets. You know, sometimes anger, promising stakeholders, and those just got refinanced in the last five years. Those are going to end up in court and in bankruptcy court a lot more. And again, you know, we've done a lot of that over the years, and. Couldn't be better positioned now because we just don't have any conflicts. So, whoever wants to bring us to bear, we can go against anybody, which is just terrific. They were always at a big firm, very tricky, right? Because somewhere in somewhere in the capital stack, somewhere in the list of stakeholders was a big client of the firm, you know. And now it's unlikely, <laughs> so it makes it a lot more opportunistic.
0: I'm curious. Then, are you also going to be taking on plaintiff side work? I mean, there may be plaintiff side cases where you represent a company or wealthy individual who's suing some other company or wealthy individual, but do you
1: think you'll be on both sides of the V? For sure, absolutely. We have some that are about to be filed right now or will be in that position of being just the classic plaintiff. We'll also have a lot of creditors where we're a plaintiff in a creditor's enforcement action, we're a plaintiff in restructuring, which is more like what you do in a big firm, but again, devilishly hard to get through, we're going to be, I think, really busy in that space for the next few years.
0: Absolutely. And I feel with the economy, you're probably going to turn south. It is good that you have that expertise. On the other side of the ledger, less on the side of economic challenge, but actually economic success, you have represented a number of billionaires over the years, Mark Cuban, Elon Musk, do you have any thoughts or advice in general about representing super wealthy, high net worth individuals? And again, I'm not speaking about any particular client, past or present, but just generally really rich people. Are they just like us? Often, awesome.
1: yes. <laughs> but I would say this, that I think rightly or wrongly, I sometimes have a reputation of being kind of a willful person. I think that's good and bad when you're dealing with a really rich, really high net worth client. Right. Because on the one hand, they usually get what they want and they usually get the advice they want. And that's not a real service to them. Right. And so it's kind of hard to say to, you know, one of the richest guys in the world or one of the most famous guys in the world. No, you're actually wrong. What you want to do is not good for you. And here's why that can be really uncomfortable and difficult. But that's really the value you're giving them, right? There's a lot of people mm-hmm. who can kind of give them an analysis of the statute or an analysis of the legal standard. But sometimes like a lot of people don't want to say to those people, you're screwed, like this is not, <laughs> this is not really looking great for you. And you have to have the willfulness but also the honesty to say, look, I want to give you my best take on this and it may make you mad at me. And it may make, you not want to listen to me but you really should. And so having the courage of your convictions and the lack of fear to express them is really important to do a good job for somebody who basically in every other aspect of their life is getting a lot of yeses.
0: I can see that being a challenge. And sometimes maybe they're experts at doing whatever it is that made them a huge amount of money, but you're the expert on the law. And so maybe sometimes you do have to tell them no or something like that. And maybe it's not what they want to hear and what they're not used to hearing.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I've said to a pretty wealthy, successful person, would you argue like this with your brain surgeon about a brain tumor? (laughs) They kind of, you know, they kind of look at me like, well, that's actually a decent point. We're a unique profession in the sense that, you know, any reasonably smart person ought to be able to understand our advice. But, you know, they often don't have the context or experience to kind of understand how things land. And that's our job to explain that. I don't know. I don't argue that much with my doctor, and I don't think these guys do either, but they sure argue with me.
0: (laughs) No, that makes sense. I see your point about how law is somewhat more accessible than, say, maybe brain surgery, and so maybe people do fancy themselves armchair lawyers. I'm curious. I do think that being at a boutique probably has some advantages in representing folks like that because you do have fewer conflicts, as you said earlier in our conversation. What about on fee arrangements? Do you think that at your firm, you are going to be able to try different things or try more different things than you did when you were at Latham?
1: Yes. I mean, the answer is an emphatic yes. It actually is going to go sort of both ways in the sense that we have a lot more flexibility to do things that are, you know, what you would term alternative fee arrangements. So not just contingency, but discounts, blended Cs, hybrid Cs, where we can do an hourly rate and a contingency. But actually more interesting to me is on things like crises management, we can do, you know, value billing. One of the frustrations of the practice of kind of running in in a crisis and managing it for a big company is on the billable hour model, you actually really don't get paid for the result you deliver, right? I mean, if, if you have to solve something in two days, You just can't build that much time. I mean, you just can't do it. And so one of the things we've introduced to clients is in our engagement letters, if we have a non-leverable, time-constrained manner and we deliver an unbelievable result for you, we want to be paid based on value, not ours. And it really makes sense for this kind of practice. It's been embraced by clients. We have not gotten a lot of pushback on it. And I think it's the future for firms like ours, because it doesn't help people to have five associates on a call, get the problem done, but it helps the firm be compensated. But we just don't have the associates and I don't want to burden the client like that. So that's something we're incorporating. Clients have been okay with it. And I think it's a really important aspect of what we're going to do.
0: I think clients would welcome it because, as you say, they're paying for value. They're paying for results. They're not paying for hours for the sake of hours. And I think if you deliver a great result, they should be happy to pay it. I think when I've spoken to general counsel and chief legal officers, what they seem unhappy about is paying huge rates and fees for results that are subpar or disappointing, whereas if you get a great, great result they're often very happy to pay your fee because you just save them even more money or you help them avoid prison or what have you. And so I can understand why clients are embracing your model.
1: Yeah, and that's the feedback that we've traditionally gotten is, your rate seems fine and your hours are fine. Explain to me the value of, you know, the three first-year associates on the case. And so this would allow us not to do that and just deliver results and deliver client service. And so that's what we're trying to do.
0: Well, I think you are well on your way to doing that. And again, I wish you the best of luck. Turning to my final four questions, which are standard for all guests. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or it can be law as a more abstract system.
1: Wow, that's a really good question. There's a lot I like about the law. What I don't like about it, and this is going to sound weird, is the subjectivity of the ultimate judgments in law, right? You can know you're right. You can know you have the right facts. You can know that it should come out your way. And there are lots of times in all of our careers where the result was determined by a subjective actor and it's the wrong result. And it's the art of our job to get that subjective fact finder to agree with us. But it's hard and it's really frustrating because. We've all been there when the decision isn't based on the, even when it comes our way, the decision isn't based on the factors it should be based on. It's based on some weird idiosyncratic thing. And I really don't like that. It's part of my job to try to manage it, but I don't like it.
0: That's a really profound comment. And I totally agree with it. I think whether you have a judge who just, has a certain view on a case, or you have a jury that is a little bit idiosyncratic, you're right, there's there's Mm -hmm. not really much you can do about that. My second question is, what would you be if you were not
1: a lawyer? Nowadays, I would be a mechanic. I love working on cars and boats, and I'm lucky enough to be financially secure. And so if I had, you know, my druthers now, that's what I'd do all day. When I was younger and was sort of starting on a career, I probably would have been an academic if I wasn't a lawyer.
0: Oh, yes, you mentioned that. What did you study undergrad?
1: I ended up studying rhetoric at Berkeley, which was a great major, but I started as a philosophy major, and had I gone into academics, I would have done that. But it was a little too abstract as a training to be a lawyer, and rhetoric wasn't the, literally the best training you could get to be a lawyer. So I switched at one point, but I liked that a lot. But nowadays, if I could do it, I'd just have a little little garage where I fix stuff.
0: <laughs> that sounds, well, I, I guess I well, it's not really fun for me, but it sounds like fun for you. So <laughs> excellent.
1: Yeah, and literally, I think, you know, when we were talking about Richard Owens earlier. I mean, that's essentially he has retired to his farm to work on motors. That's what he does now.
0: I really admire people like you guys with multiple talents. I am not at all handy. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night?
1: <laughs> a good night, maybe five and a half hours. A bad night, considerably less.
0: Oh my gosh. And you're just like that and you function well on five and a half or less. Wow.
1: Well is a relative term. Uh, <laughs> I function pretty crabbly, but I do function. Yeah. I mean, it's great in the sense that when, you know, professional matters require me not to sleep, it's very handleable and, and usual. But yeah, it's it's not great for you.
0: Well, I have to say I'm actually kind of jealous, but <laughs> my last question is, any final words of wisdom, whether career advice or life advice for the listeners and readers out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you're listening to something right now, and at least for lawyers. I mean, young lawyers are always asking, you know, what's a skill that a young lawyer needs? You know, how can I be successful in this enterprise? And it's listening is really just incredible incredibly important. You get to work with really wise people who spent their whole careers trying to figure out this profession. And it's remarkable, the number of young lawyers and other lawyers who never listen or don't listen well or don't listen hard. And it's really just the most important thing. You're getting a priceless education and training and you're not listening. And so that's my advice is listen to the people that you're working with. Listen to the people that you're working against listen to the people who are making these rulings and things. It's just incredibly important and incredibly educational.
0: I could not agree more. I think that is an excellent note to end on. I've certainly enjoyed listening to your wisdom and thoughts today. Chris, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Questions were amazingly insightful and and I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks again and best of luck with the new firm. Thanks, David. Thanks so much to Chris for joining me. Congratulations to him and Pat Smith and Rodney Villazor on the launch of their new firm, which I predict will be a force to be reckoned with in the world of high stakes litigation. Would you like to launch the next Clark Smith Villazor? Reach out to NextFirm, the sponsor of this podcast. They have helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212 292 1000 or email development at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already, over at davidlattsubstack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, May 3. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.